Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. The Best in the World Podcast with Richard Parr. Hello and welcome to The Best in the World with Richard Parr. This week I spoke to Lenny Kraselberg, the four-time Olympic gold medalist. He won three golds in swimming at the 2000 Sydney Olympics and then another gold in Athens in 2004. It's a fantastic chat with the CEO of the Kraselberg Swim Academy. And we talk about a whole range of topics on this week's podcast. It includes how Lenny adjusted from moving from living in the Ukraine and being brought up there to living in the United States and California. He talks about how working with Mark Schubert really changed his mindset and made him become the best in the world at what he does. He also talks about his training. He talks about overtraining, in fact, and we talk about his journey throughout his swimming career and his life now as a businessman. It's a really good chat with Lenny. It's coming up in just a few moments, but first I want to say about Audible. Audible is one of the leading suppliers of audiobooks in the world. They've got 180,000 titles to choose from and it can be in a whole range of topics. It could be sport, it could be business, it could be fiction, anything you like and Audible should have it at audible.com. And in fact, if you want to try out their service for free, yes, for free, you can do it by going to audibletrial.com forward slash best that's audibletrial.com forward slash best. And that will give you a chance to check out their service for free for 30 days. And that includes one free download. So you can go and do that and check it out for yourself. Go and have a look at it. That's audibletrial.com forward slash best. All right. It's time for us to learn from the very best. It's time for our interview with Lenny Kraselberg. The Best in the World Podcast with Richard Parr. Lenny Kraselberg, welcome to The Best in the World with Richard Parr, four-time Olympic gold medalist in swimming. It's so great to have you on the program. Of course, that is a while ago now, back in the early 2000s. It's 2017 right now. Why don't we just update our listeners into what you're up to at the moment? 
Well, first of all, thank you for having me on the show. I'm really excited, excited to, you know, share my story. Um, yes, it has been quite some time <laughs> since, uh, of course, the success in Sydney in 2000 and then coming back to Athens in 2004. And uh, since my retirement right after Athens, uh, I got into uh, a business of uh, swimming schools and learned to swim academies for kids. Uh, where we teach um, mostly water safety. Our primary focus is on water safety uh, rather than competitive swimming. And I have been uh, pretty intimately involved in that for the past 12 years uh, since retiring. And, you know, today that really does occupy most of my, you know, professional, I I mean, career, post-athletic career uh, life. Mm. So what exactly are you doing on a day-to-day basis? Are you teaching the kids the water safety? Or as I've seen, you've got lots of academies all across the state. So is it more of an administrational role or are you kind of looking after the whole business? Or Exactly. I'm more overseeing as a CEO, overseeing the business, uh, overseeing uh, all of our facilities. We have uh, locations uh, in L.A. that I own, and then I I now franchise our concept to other locations around the country, as you mentioned, but really involved more from a a bigger picture on uh, continue to grow the business, continue to perfect what we're currently doing, looking for new ways uh, to be better at what we do. And, uh, you know, I, I have about, uh, in Los Angeles, have a staff of about 90 uh, administrative plus swim instructors that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm keeping a pretty close tabs on. So it, it definitely keeps me pretty busy from day to, on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. It sounds tiring. Now, you mentioned about the, the business growing. Uh, do you set goals and, and how regularly? Well, of course. I mean, I, I said look, uh, every, every year we really set our goals in terms of uh, what we want to accomplish in, in, in upcoming year and really trying to stick to those goals and, you know, see how close we can come to fulfilling them. Um, that really goes back to my professional career uh, as a swimmer and always having goals uh, set for myself, whether it would, it would be a short-term goal of what I wanted to accomplish during a particular season or during a, a particular, you know, maybe swim competition. And then obviously building on that to bigger goals, which, you know, for me was always, you know, international competitions and ultimately, you know, all the way up to the Olympic Games. Mm, yeah, that's what I was leading to, the, the comparison of what you're doing now to what you were doing back then. And we'll go into more of these things in a little bit more detail. But are there some things which you know you do in this in this new role, in this new position, which other than goal setting that you really learn as a swimmer, which maybe people who aren't professional athletes or professional swimmers might not have that skill set from? You know what I've learned a lot is uh, the success of my business today depends a lot on the people that work, I work with or that, that work for me. Um, valuing their uh, opinion, um, their, their experience, uh, letting their voice be heard is really important for me. I want them to always feel comfortable coming to me and speaking their mind and knowing that they, you know, they will have my full attention and uh, we will have a healthy conversation and really give a consideration whatever ideas or suggestions they might have. Um, that goes very, you know, very similar to, you know, when I was an com- athlete competing, 
you know, I've always respect, had tremendous respect for my coaches. I mean, it goes back from when I was a kid. You know, for me, the coach was the authority. Whether sometimes I agreed or disagreed with with a certain uh, philosophy or certain training sets or our approach, I I always I was always very professional about it and always understood uh, the part of respecting the coach and um, acknowledging the fact that you know he had my best best intentions you know f- for me and same thing with my you know with my teammates that I've always trained for I understood that I can only be as good as uh the people that around me that were pushing me on an every single day basis and although I could uh, I would might have been a little bit more talented they were and achieved greater success than many of the teammates that I trained with nonetheless they went through the same grind of four, five, six hours a day of just intense training, uh, fulfilling their own goals for themselves, but ultimately, you know, pushing me uh, to, to the levels that I was able to achieve. Was there any one teammate or perhaps a rival which you think pushed you your hardest? Yes, absolutely. Uh, Brad Bridgewater, I don't know if that name rings a bell, but he was an Olympic uh, gold medalist in 1996 in 200 backstroke. Uh, we, so we obviously swam the same event, and we trained together from about 1995 to 2000. So obviously having Brad training with me you know, twice a day for five years was, was an incredible opportunity to basically race every single day with the best in the world. And I'm saying literally best in the world. So we brought the best in each other. And, you know, I couldn't have asked for anything more uh, because by the time I would get to competitions, I, I, I knew how to deal with it because I dealt with it every single day in, in, in training. Do you think what you, you learned and you rubbed off there is similar to what Aaron Pearsall then did from you? Well, you know, with Aaron, I didn't really have much opportunity to train with him on an everyday basis. Um, Aaron trained at a different club uh, where before, uh, you know, when he was still a, a teenager before college, he trained in Orange County, which was about an hour from where I was training at USC. And then he went on to Texas. Uh, but I, I, you know, I would like to think that, you know, Aaron being about nine years younger than me, I know that he's always looked up to me and, and really studied the way I trained. And, you know, at any time that we, you know, we were in training camps together, uh, we definitely had a pretty good close bond. Um, I guess the longest we've ever spent time was, uh, in the pre pre Olympic camp in 2000 before Sydney, uh, where we were, we spent about a month together. So we did train quite a bit at that time, but, you know, that was a really, as we were leading into, into Sydney, uh, the training was a little bit different. There was a lot of taper down. So there wasn't as, as intense type of training where you really pushed, pushed each other in practice for, for a long periods of time, the way I did it with Brad Bridgewater. Okay, I look forward to talking a bit more in detail about your typical training day in a few minutes. But I'd like to kind of go back to the start now and and talk a little bit about your early years. You've mentioned a few things there about your coaches and things like that, because you you were born in the Ukraine, correct? That's correct. And how, how was life there until you moved to the United States? 
Um, yeah, so I was I grew up in the city of Odessa in the Ukraine, um, and uh, my my father always wanted me to be an athlete. In fact, he really wanted me to be a soccer player, which was uh, you know most popular sport. And and at that time, Soviet Union. We're talking about late 70s, uh, 80s, where when I grew up in in that country. So it was all still Soviet Union. And then at around age of five, uh, he, you know, there was, I was too young to do soccer. So he put me into swimming because that was really the only other sport where you can start at such a young age. And I took a liking to it um, and uh, was pretty good at it. Uh, and then by the time I was uh, I, nine years old, I started fourth grade. Uh, we're talking still the old Soviet sports system. Uh, where you were selected at a certain age if they saw some talents or some potential in you. And I was selected at that time into a special swim class, which was also my school class, where we spent a lot of time together uh, doing double train, you know, double practices, you know, practice in the morning, going to school, and then another practice in the afternoon. So that was quite a, quite intense training for a nine-year-old Um but that was part of the culture, and it was also really a privilege to be selected into this special group, and you know, having an opportunity to to be a focus of a of a club that really they thought that you had some potential. So for about three years before I moved to the, you know, we decided to move on to the United States. This was part of my life, and uh, I, I still to this day attribute a lot of my success that I've achieved in the sport of swimming due to those early trainings in, in Soviet Union. Yeah, I was going to say, like, looking back, you, you said they were quite a lot for a nine-year-old, but they were kind of what you what made you a little bit, wasn't it? So would, would you still recommend that for any young nine-year-old now who's pretty good at swimming and wants to be an Olympic champion, or is there another method, do you think? No, I, I'll be honest with you. I would not recommend at such an early age. Um, I think um, you, you're asking for a burned out. And it, it, experience was a perfect example of that is because I think we start out with about 35 kids. By the time I left the United States uh, at the age of 13, 12, 13, we only had about seven that were still continuing to swim. So most other kids just quit because it was just too intense. Um, I think for me, coming to the United States and being trying to adjust to a new culture, a new language, I didn't really train as much as I was I was used to back in Soviet Union. So I think that helped me to stay in the sport and not 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 give up on it. But I do I will tell you though um, what 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 I got the most out of it that I've always carried through my whole career is that the the belief and understanding that if you wanted to be successful at something that it was going to take tremendous amounts of hard work and dedication and there was simply no shortcuts to achieving you know greatness in the sport whatever sport that might be for me obviously it was swimming. And obviously all that hard work eventually paid off. So you moved at the age of 13 to the United States. You mentioned the language, you mentioned the culture. How easy or difficult, well, you've, you've said how difficult, just how difficult was it, that adjustment? What, what were the things, was it just a strange place? And how long did it take you to finally get up to speed and feel comfortable? 
Yeah, it was definitely a tough transition. Obviously, I'm, I was coming from uh, a very sheltered culture in Soviet Union to a pretty, you know, uh, wide open liberal society in the United States. And uh, it, it was a, 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 an eye opening experience. Uh, not knowing the language is really hard. Um, you know, also seeing, um, I have, I have a very uh, close family, you know, my parents and I had a younger sister, have a younger sister and, uh, just seeing, uh, the challenges my parents are going through, just adjusting to, to, to living in America. We moved to Los Angeles and, uh, being able to, um, find jobs. And, uh, it, it was tough watching them. For me, the language is hard, was the hardest. Uh, I remember for at least year, first year, just going to school, couldn't really understand much what the teachers were talking about. Um, I remember also when I w- I joined a swim club almost immediately uh, when we, you know, we, when we settled in L.A. And to this day, I clearly remember, you know, just coming to practices and, you know, after practice in the locker room, you're standing in the shower, just kind of washing yourself and, and changing and all these uh Kids want to know about you, want to know how you, you know, who you are, where you come from, and about learning about you. And yet, I couldn't really communicate much to them because I just didn't have much much of a language knowledge at all. Um, I would say it took me about, you know, three to four years to to feel comfortable. Um, that's really typical in terms of uh, uh, opening up and feeling confident about yourself and communicating uh, with others. Although I started to understand the language earlier, uh, to really feel feel comfortable talking was, definitely took at least three to four years. Yeah, I, I lived in Madrid for about nine months and you start to understand things, but towards the end I could still only really order a beer and, and, and try to chat up a girl <laughs> badly. Um, <laughs> So you're in the States, uh, three, four years, you're finally settling, you're finally understanding the language. At which point did you then decide or or was there even a moment where swimming was going to be your future, that the Olympic Games were in your sight, that to become an Olympic world champion, world record holder was what you were going to aim to do? Yeah, you know, uh, I guess around the age of 14, 15, so not too long after we settled in LA, um, I was definitely on the verge of quitting the sport. Um, main reason was, again, there was a struggle of adopting to, to living in the new country and learning the language and, um, not having friends and, uh, also seeing my parents, the struggle they were going through. I, I just wanted to, I didn't want to swim anymore. And really my father taught me out of it. Uh, he was always a, uh, you know, big sports fan, never an athlete himself, uh, but he taught me out of it. And I remember him always telling me that, you know, your coach in, in, in Soviet Union kept telling me that Lenny was born to be a swimmer and was born to be a backstroker. Uh, and I always, those words are always, those comments were always in the back of my mind. Uh, now, now just, just so you know, through my I guess teen years, um, I, I wasn't a very, I wasn't a standout swimmer. Um, I was an average swimmer at best when, when we were, when the first few years in America. And uh, 
So I really didn't see much potential or even a chance or even thought that I would ever get to the to this level that I eventually ended up getting to. Um, I didn't even, I applied to a number of colleges after senior year in high school and no one responded back just because I wasn't fast enough. So I had to go to a community college where, and basically just walk on to a community college swim team because anyone could do that. Uh, you didn't need to be recruited for a community college. And uh, really maybe after my first year at the community college that I, I swam pretty well and uh, uh, my coach at the community college approached Mark Schubert who was a head coach at, University, at USC, University of Southern California, and told him, you know, Mark, I have this kid uh, that's uh, pretty talented but somewhat raw, and I would like you to take a look at him and see if uh, he can train with you guys during the summertime. Uh, that was the summer of 1994. And Mark Schubert uh, said, yes, of course, he can give it a try, and if he can, you know, hang with our group, uh, that would be you know, that would be nice. And the group, the training group had Janet Evans, Greg Burgess, uh, Brad Bridgewater. So, I mean, you're talking world-class swimmers. And I was nowhere in that level, on that level at all. And, you know, just in two months that I trained, I was so excited for the opportunity to be in the same pool with these great swimmers. And I was given this chance to be part of this group that I I, uh, I took advantage of that opportunity. And uh, for me, wor- working hard and leaving it all in the pool was never a problem. And uh, Mark Schubert really appreciated that and uh, saw the, the work ethic and obviously saw the talents. And uh, literally at the end of the summer, he sat me in his office and said, Lenny, I would like to offer you a full scholarship to USC. And I really believe you can be the best backstroker in the world one day. And uh, that was summer of 94. And that's when really my career kind of, my whole outlook and my career really changed when I heard him tell me that in his office. Yeah, when he said that, is it, did that just grow your confidence? Did you start to believe in it? Or was it now the hard work really starts because this can happen. I've got to put the work in and I've got all these great people around me and I can soak up this knowledge and, and get even better. It it was both. There's no doubt it was both because I I knew that there, there had to be tremendous amounts of work uh, to uh, to get to, to the level these, you know, my teammates were at. And, but also Mark telling me that I learned about Mark uh, that summer learn about his resume knowing the the multiple olympic gold medalists that he coached going back to 1976 and being one of the best coaches in the world and when someone like that tells you that you could be the best in the world i think it's an a, a tremendous confidence booster i know for me it was and uh no doubt played a, a, a crucial role in in, in my success How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. 
Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The Best in the World Podcast with Richard Parr. We've got more from the Olympic swimming champion Lenny Kreiselberg in just a few moments, but I just want to tell you about Sportachino. Sportachino is our other sponsor of today's podcast. It is the daily video cast that I do on Facebook, YouTube, Periscope, and of course at sportachino.com. It covers all things related to sport. We're on every single weekday. Go and check it out, sportachino.com for your daily sports digest. All right, let's return to my conversation with Lenny Kreiselberg. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. So let's talk about your training. Obviously, you, you got great success in 98 and 2000. What was a typical training day like in that era? Well, training, obviously, we had a, a two-hour morning practice um, and then, uh, went back, well, I, I was in, at the university of Southern California still, uh, being, uh, taking classes until, until 1998. So from 90, really from 95 to 98, it was a two morning, a two hour morning practice, then going to classes until about 2 PM and then coming back for another two hour practice in the water and then an hour of dry land work. Um, once I graduated from the university in 98, then my focus was uh, solely on training and preparation for Olympics in 2000. Um, and although my my training didn't necessarily change, we still kept that same schedule of two hours in the morning and then three in the afternoon. Um, just the ability to uh, 
to, to have more rest in between the practices so that I could be more, you know, productive and more efficient. Um, every practice uh, w- was really important and I think played a big role in, you know, in my continued improvement. Mm. I bet it was a relief when you had to stop studying and then could have that bit of extra rest. Yeah. Oh, oh, absolutely. That extra two, uh, you know, that two hour rest after morning practice uh, before afternoon was, was really, really helpful for me. So tell us about the World Championships in 1998. You were the first swimmer in 12 years to win both the backstroke events. How was that? Well, it was it was an exciting time. It was obviously my uh, first big me, biggest big me. I mean, I went to 1997 Pan Pacific Championships in Japan uh, in Fukuoka where I won uh, both the 100 and 200 backstroke. And, um, you know, that's that was my first, international competition and I, I had a lot of confidence after that competition that um, I was starting to become the best in the world and uh, leading into Perth World Championships um, I was definitely riding high and and confident in, in myself and, and, and ability to win and uh, you know if you looked at the times my times were not fast for that competition um, it, 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 in fact, they were probably one of the slower times for me in terms of winning an inter- international meet, but I was still able to just build based on the confidence and the, and, and the work I knew I put in, I was able to win both the hundred and 200, um, and really it was a great springboard for me, um, going into basically the next couple of years into, uh, into the Sydney Olympics. Um, I've always been a conf- I build my my career on confidence. I'm a big believer of, of on confidence, and uh, I also feel that it snowballs based on on continued success and improvements. So once you know I won in Perth, it just gave me that much more confidence that I belong at that level. And if I continue to work hard and if I continue to train smart. Uh, that I I believe I can continue to be the best in the world. Yeah, because you did that the following year, didn't you, in 1999 when you broke three world records. Uh, you, you talked about confidence there, and you know that that's very much very much the the mental aspect of sport. Were there any kind of visualization skills that you were doing? Would you do any kind of meditation? Would you do any kind of pre-race ritual? What what would kind of be going through your mind, but before big races like that? Um, not much. Oh, visualization, a little bit of it. Uh, more so in training, um, where I really, you know, I, when I, we had really hard, intense sets, we did a lot of quality, fast swimming. I imagined always that this is how it's going to feel during the, during the competition. This is how I'm going to feel the last part of my race. So be ready for it. Expect it. Uh, no, remember it because what you want to do is when you're racing, you want to already know what to expect. And that's what it was for me. So a lot of the thinking and visualization for me personally was happening during practices, almost on a daily basis. And I really think that helped me because when I got to competition, I didn't want to think. 
I didn't think I needed to because all of that was done, uh, you know, beforehand. So I wanted to be as relaxed. I wanted my mind to be as free as possible and just going and executing and doing what I knew how to do because I practiced it for so long on a daily basis. So that was always my approach. Mm, we, we had something similar when we spoke to the 2008 decathlon Olympic gold medalist Brian Clay he was saying his training was so so grueling that actually when it came to competition it was easier than the training now do you have any kind of unofficial world record times you may have done in the pool Lenny <laughs> no no never unofficial world record times but I've done sometimes the you know that at at that time in 90 98, 99 would be ranked probably in top three, four in the world. And that's not that easy to do in practices just because, you know, again, when you're the state of mind and the preparation is always different when you approach, when you are the competition versus when you're training and you're more tired. Um, so, but, but definitely once or twice I did some really special stuff in practices. So it's 2000, we're at the Sydney Olympics, you've broken world records, you're the world champion, you mentioned about the snowball effect and being confident, was there any danger of being overconfident? It was never a danger overconfident because I, I never in my career um, that I feel overconfident because I, I, am a, I was always a student of the sport of swimming and I was always a student of sports in general and always understood and that on any given day anything is possible. So I never took that for granted. So my preparation never changed. I, you know, I was always very focused and never took anything for granted. The only thing that starts, you know, sometimes creeps in your mind is the fact that you because it's an Olympic year, because you want to do so much, because you want to be so prepared, you're almost afraid to be overtrained, overdo it. Um, what we've seen over the, over the past maybe seven to eight years, that there's been a lot of studies done on the of, on the facts of overtraining and overdoing it, and not having enough rest, and having a detrimental effect on the performance. Back in the late 90s, 2000, we didn't really talk much about that. So that was a concern. And in fact, I will tell you that two months before the games, I lost to Aaron Thiersall at a meet in Los Angeles in July of 2000. And it was for that reason. I was overtrained. My last 50, I was, it was literally three seconds slower than you know, my typical 200 backstroke races. And it was only attributed to the fact that I was overtrained because I knew I was in great shape. I knew I've done all the work. So it was just overdoing it. And that always a concern, um, especially when you're going into Olympic year. It's funny, we've interviewed Mahe Drysdale, who's an Olympic champion rower and also um, the BMX Olympic champion. And both of them were saying they got injuries about three to four months before 
the games themselves so i do wonder if if that little break in some ways help them from to stop overtraining their body relaxes and then they're able to to go at the games properly it's it's all very interesting i I guess we'll never know about that i would tell you that i think there's a value in that break i really do because it gives the body it almost recharges the battery yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. Uh, so 2000, you won three gold medals. How did you feel when you won the first gold medal? Was it finally my dream has come true or is it I've got two more events to do and I want to win two more goals, I want to win three gold medals or a little bit of both or, or what else was there? Uh, well, first, relief. More than anything, it was a relief that I was finally able to win and then I was an Olympic gold medalist. Uh, There was a lot of pressure on me. As you mentioned yourself, I mean, I was a favorite going in. I had a tremendous run going back to 97, world champion in 98, three world records. I mean, people talked about that I simply could not be beat. So all of that definitely played, uh, you know, you're trying to block it out, but it's almost impossible to, you know, block it all out. So, yes. Uh, that first win was a relief. And uh, I think after I won the first, it was almost easier to do the 200 backstroke and then do the relay just because I already knew that something that, you know, that I I was striving towards for many years was finally achieved. And no one was going to ever take away the fact that I was an Olympic gold medalist. Um, it uh, made for the other two races a little bit easier. Mm. So 2001, you decided to uh, to skip the World Championships and you competed at the Maccabeah Games in Israel. How was that experience? That was a very special experience for me. Um, being being Jewish and growing up uh, in a country that we couldn't really talk, growing up in Soviet Union and not being able to be proud of my heritage, um, it was definitely a, a unique experience you know, than being in Israel and taking part in this global uh, Jewish sporting event. And uh, um, it was it was more than just an athletic competition. For me, it was an, a cultural experience being in Israel and being amongst thousands of Jewish athletes uh, was a very um, life-changing experience that uh, to this day, um, you know, I still have tremendous memories from and that I, I, I value quite a bit. Was that the first time you'd been to Israel? That was the first time I was in Israel, exactly. So there, there was so many things that, that were right about that that particular year and and, uh, and skipping the world championships and going to, to the Maccabiya. Yeah, fantastic stuff. So you were then suffering with some, some injuries, shoulder and knee injuries. How, how did you cope with that what changes would you make to your training because eventually you, you still qualified for the, the 2004 games yeah you know unfortunately the unfortunately the years between 2000 and 2004 were not um good for me in terms of health you know i i originally felt uncomfort in the shoulder um i think even before the relay in 2000 but obviously didn't give much thought to it just thought that it was just a lot of racing and stress at the games that it wasn't, you know, a big deal. And then I took a few months off after the 2000 games. And when I came back, the, the, the nagging ache in the shoulder continued to persist. 
And it wasn't until, uh, I guess, spring of 2001 that I had a scan and we realized it was a torn labrum. Um, obviously, I had plans to go to Israel and compete and did a couple of uh, European um, cup, European swim meets uh, in the summer, but ultimately decided that after Israel, I would need to have a shoulder surgery. Um, I had that, and then I hurt the knee in 2002, uh, training on a treadmill, just, again, going all out, <laughs> running sprints on the treadmill, and, you know, accidentally stepped off the treadmill, and my knee buckled. Mm. Um, and then I re-injured the shoulder again in 2003, uh, basically before Barcelona World Championships, and decided to forego the World Champs so I can have the surgery and have enough time to rehab so I can train for Athens. And uh, and then I re-injured the shoulder again in December of 2003. Um, and basically, between December of 2003 and April 2004, I, I only kicked. I didn't even tr- use both of my arms because my shoulder was so bummed. Did you ever think of not trying to compete, Lenny, when you were going through all those injuries? I thought about it uh, in 2000, early 2004. Yes, I did, because it was such a struggle to stay up mentally. Uh, also knowing that I was already a three-time Olympic gold medalist, definitely kept popping in my head, why am I doing this? Mm-hmm. But uh, I've always been someone that follows through on things and didn't want to quit. And again, I, I uh, that year between 2003 and four, I changed coaches and went to train with Dave Salo, who coached Aaron for years before Aaron moved on to Texas. And uh, they really instilled a lot of confidence in me. He's, you know, he said, Lenny, let's focus on the kick. Let's, let's try to be the best kicker you can be. And with about a hundred days to go to Olympic trials, we'll put in some, you know, swimming into it and let's see what can happen. And, um, you know, I was fortunate enough to make another Olympic team uh, with, with all the setbacks. Um, unfortunately, I don't think I had enough base to, uh, uh, to be able to carry on another month and then do well in Athens. But I, I know I did the best that I could. Um, but one thing, if I reflect back on the injuries in all those years uh, between two, you know, 2000 and 2004, is, you know, I, unfortunately, I, I, I probably should have uh, approach the rehab. I should have been more patient in my rehab and and getting into the full training. Um, just because you know you have to be really careful after surgeries and injuries not to re-injure myself yourself. For me, because I was the best in the world, because I knew everyone, you know, my competitors were gunning for me. I just felt like I was, you know, I was always on the clock. I didn't think I have, I had the time. I didn't think I, I, I could be patient enough. So anytime I felt good, I was pushing because that's the only way I knew how to do it. And really didn't have people around me to, you know, to pull, put the brakes on me a little bit. And I think that's what I needed it. So after the Olympics, you you retired how did you come up with that decision was it just all the injuries and and how did you make the adjustments how did that feel um definitely all the injuries i mean i i 
if I would have stayed healthy, I probably would have continued swimming, but injuries definitely, you know, put an end to it. Uh, in fact, I will tell you that in 2006, I decided to come back for about, uh, because Dave Salo then took over at USC as the head coach. And I, I loved training with him for that one year between 2003 and 2004. He had a completely different approach to, to training. Instead of volume training, he was all short, really race pace training. Um, and I really enjoyed that. So in 2006, for about half a year, I decided to come to, to give it another shot. And, uh, and then my shoulder started to <laughs> bother me again. And then I said, that's it. <laughs> no more, no more attempts. But, but in terms of the transition, I, I will tell you that I, I, I was pretty fortunate. I, uh, I planned it even before, before I was, I retired. I, I was always pretty entrepreneurial. I, I had some friends that I grew up with, also immigrants from former Soviet Union uh, that were entrepreneurial. So although I was professional in swimming, I also watched them uh, be successful in, in, in the business ventures. And um, so I started to plan things for myself uh, while I was still competing. And that really helped that transition for me uh, to make it a little easier because I'm sure you have heard and I'm sure you've talked to athletes where it's a pretty eye-opening experience where, you know, you retire as a professional athlete, you've done something for, you know, decades and all of a sudden you have nothing to go to and you have nothing planned. And it's a pretty tough reality. Mm. The episode we've got out right now, actually, as we do this interview with Annie Vernon, a uh, world champion rower, it, it talks exactly about that, that that difficulty of kind of what do I do tomorrow? And, and everyone starts putting on a little bit of weight because they're not burning the same amount of calories and everything like that. Well, Lenny, it's been so good to talk to you. It's been really great to get all of your amazing knowledge of what you're now doing with your swim academy and, and also everything that you achieved in your amazing career just before we go Lenny why don't you let us know how we can learn more about your swim academy and also any other social media links you might have well uh yes thank you for giving me the opportunity first of all to tell my story and you know for people to continue to follow me they can always go on uh, my website lennykswim.com it's a website that uh is uh, about our swim academy but it also has links to uh you know, my personal social media uh, channels and more about what I'm doing. Again, it's LennyKSwim.com. Brilliant. Well, Lenny Kreiselberg, thank you for being on the show and thank you for being the best in the world. Thank you. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. I mentioned a few other episodes that you can go back and listen to while speaking to Lenny. Maybe go back and listen to the one with the world champion rower, Annie Vernon. We've also got a conversation with Brian Clay, the 2008 decathlon Olympic champion. And I did mention a BMX Olympic champion. I don't think I said his name. It is, of course, Connor Fields. Go back and listen to that podcast. Really fun chat with the Las Vegas native. There's also other podcasts with some amazing swimmers. We've got a conversation with Nathan Adrian, Tom Shields, Natalie Coglin, Stephanie Rice. In fact, I think we've had more swimmers 
than any other sport on the program and we've learned a lot from all of them so go back and listen to them on iTunes you can do that by going to richardparr.net forward slash iTunes that's a really quick way to get there and while you're there if you get a chance to rate and review the podcast and also subscribe to it I would really appreciate it it really helps publicize and help our show grow which is really good I think because I think there's a lot of excellent knowledge here which I would like more and more people to learn from all right I've been Richard Parr you've been listening to the best in the world I'll be back next Wednesday with another amazing guest that we can learn from until then I'll see you next week goodbye the best in the world podcast with Richard Parr Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.